Luke chapter, Luke chapter 17. Anyone who has uh, read the Bible on anything of a consistent basis, you've uh, experienced something of the uniqueness of the Bible. And you may not have language for it, but it's part of what makes the scripture so unique. Think of it like this. There are times when our life situation, our life experience or life circumstances cause a familiar story or a familiar passage to meet us in a new way. Um, we've read the passage many times. But this time, for, for a variety of reasons, this time we read it and we experience it differently. This time it brings a different insight, a different understanding or perspective that allows us to identify with the passage in a needed way. Um, it, it's as though sometimes uh, we're reading the passage for the first time with a different set of eyes. Ever experienced that? And it just seems to just kind of jump off the page. It is one of the unique ways in which the scriptures uh, are alive and active and God-breathed, as, as we read about in Hebrews chapter 4. They have this uh, unique capacity to shape us in real time, in real life situations, by stories that were written way in the past. It's the uniqueness of the living nature of the word of God. Well, I experienced that this week with the story that we're going to look at this morning. I hadn't originally a, a planned to include this story in the series. I, some of you may know I, I kind of plan series out months in advance. And I hadn't planned on looking at this passage in the series, but I was reading Luke 17 to prepare for the talk that was on the schedule. And the story just impacted me in a fresh way that was so strong that I, I felt led to include it, which always makes life miserable for all of our worship planners and children's workers and everyone because on Monday afternoon, I'm sending them a note saying it's all changed. But I think you'll see as we work through the passage why this passage takes on different, maybe different meaning today that you and I can see it in different eyes. So let's begin verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem... Uh, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Uh, for those who have been with us in the series, we describe this section of Luke, Luke chapters 9 through 19, almost like Luke's travel journal. Uh, they were traveling between Galilee and Jerusalem in Samaria, and most of the stories in these chapters are unique to Luke. You will not find them in Matthew or Mark. They're unique stories told by Luke. And as he traveled through Samaria, he engaged in conversations with a wide variety of people he encountered. Some were curious about who Jesus was. Uh, some were already convinced they were what we, you and I would call followers of Jesus today. Others were critics. We looked at that last week. A wide range of people. It's why, why we named this series Conversation Between, Between Sundays. Well, Jesus is traveling somewhere on the border between Galilee and Samaria. Luke doesn't believe it important enough to, to be more specific in the story. He just leaves it in a very general place. In fact, the village is even unnamed, verse 12. And as he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. 
And they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. The skin condition of leprosy brought huge social stigma in Jesus' day. Uh, People with leprosy were separated from their family and friends, separated from the community, and they were placed together outside the village or outside the city in a special colony with other lepers. Um, Words that you and I have become very familiar with today. They were isolated, quarantined, and social distanced in an extreme way. And that was the nature of life for these lepers. Uh, If you're interested, you can go back to Leviticus 13 and 14, where the Mosaic law outlined the various practices for for leprosy. But it was against the Mosaic law and against socially acceptable custom for lepers to enter a village. And when they were walking and approaching other people on, on a pathway, social custom dictated that they kind of shout out, unclean, unclean. It was a way of announcing to other people that they were in the vicinity and to steer clear of them and to cut a wide berth and maintain their social distance. And I think for us today, it's, it's hard to even imagine the shame that leprosy brought with it. Um, well, a group of 10 lepers... When they saw Jesus approaching the village, and if you notice the passage carefully, they they were standing at a safe distance. They were off in the distance because social custom required that. And they shouted out to Jesus, but different than custom, they didn't shout out unclean. They shouted, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. They asked for mercy. Now, I think we may read this story differently today, and you may already be ahead of me. Imagine 10 people who had tested positive for COVID-19 and are serious enough that they've had to been hospitalized. They've been isolated from family and friends, quarantined from anyone other than other COVID patients and the medical professionals caring for them. And they're desperate, they're, they're afraid. Not even sure they'll ever leave the hospital. And on some level, I think all of us had to confront our fears during this pandemic. Maybe not the fears of someone in the hospital with COVID. There has been the fear of being infected by others or the fear of infecting others. There's been the fear of being isolated from family and friends, um, or even the fear of being criticized and judged because of your opinions about COVID. Now, fear isn't necessarily a bad thing. Fear is one of the most human of emotions that is designed by God that is closely connected to very basic God-given human instincts like self-preservation. 
And things that threaten our self-preservation stir fear in us. But in a world that is suffering under the curse of sin and the rule of Satan, we can become overcome by fear and fearful and held hostage by our fears. And left unguarded, fear sabotages what I believe is a deeper desire for us to be loving people. And not carefully observed when you and I become fearful people and the, 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 the bend towards self-protection becomes so strong that we lose our capacity to love other people. We've, we've reached a, a tipping point. Let's go back to the story. Now, we don't know how long these 10 had lived with their leprosy. Weeks? Months, years, we don't know. There are stories of people spending their entire lives in a leper colony. We're not told how long these 10 men had lived with leprosy. In desperation, they cry out to Jesus to have mercy on them. And they're asking Jesus to heal them. Verse 14, when Jesus saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. Now, I want to linger here for a moment because that is not the response they were anticipating from Jesus. Maybe not the response that you and I would have anticipated from Jesus. You see, on other occasions, there were other stories where Jesus had responded to a leper and he had moved closer to the leper and and actually touched the leper. Uh, Against all social distancing protocols and all recommended practices of the day. Jesus moved towards the leper, touched them, and healed them on the spot. Those stories just spread. And, and, and they, they knew those stories. And they must have held out some hope that Jesus would do the same for them. Instead, Jesus shouts back to them that they're to go show themselves to the priest. It's a curious, curious statement by Jesus. I think Jesus was more interested, he was interested in more than delivering them from leprosy. He sought to discover their willingness to trust him. Here here was the question Jesus was, was seeking to discover. Were they desperate enough that they would follow Jesus' instructions? Were they desperate enough that they would do what Jesus asked them to do and go to the priest? Now, we'll talk about that in just a moment. And the amazing thing in the story is all 10 did. All 10 said, okay, we'll do it. And, and they head towards the, the, village, uh, the village priest. And as they walk to the priest, in the process of, of walking to the priest, and we don't know how long the distance was, but as they walked, all 10 were cleansed instantly. The leprosy completely disappeared from their skin. Try to imagine that moment, walking, and and all of a sudden, you can see the the, the leprosy just begin to disappear from your skin. We might describe this as a socially distanced healing. (laughs) Jesus is not even present. There's another story in Luke 5 that gives us insight into why Jesus sent them to a priest and helps us gain perspective on this passage. In Luke 5, uh, Jesus was in one of the towns, and a man who came along was covered with leprosy. 
When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face to the ground and he begged Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And by the way, I want you to notice something. The language in the scriptures is, is so important. Uh, Jesus, he, he's asked if they would make him clean. It reflected the social stigma, the leprosy, the leprosy felt, the shame. They were considered unclean. This wasn't just someone with a skin condition. They were unclean. And, and so, the, so the leper says, I want you to make me clean. Make me whole. Not just remove the leprosy, but remove the shame. Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. He said, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And here, here's the verse. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. You see, in Jesus' day, the priests served as health inspectors. It was the priests who would certify that someone, in fact, had been healed of leprosy. And so the priest would examine uh, the individual, see that they were clean, and then make sure that they had offered the, the needed sacrifices before they were given permission to return to their family, before they could go back into their friendships and their community. They had to kind of go through this protocol of being examined, cleared, cleansed, and, and going through the sacrificial system that allowed them to kind of reenter life. Now let's go back to Luke 17. So Jesus sent the 10 to the priests, knowing full well that by the time the lepers would arrive, they would arrive cleansed. And, and would then experience being cleared by the priest to return to their pre-leprosy lives. And when they were asked by the priest and others in the community, what, what happened? What happened? All, all 10 of you are, are completely healed. Uh, what happened? They would have the opportunity to talk about Jesus. Now we get to the point of the story in verse 15. One of them, one of the 10, when he was healed... The moment he was healed, he came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. One of the ten, when his leprosy disappeared, as he was walking towards the village priests, and, and they all began to realize that the leprosy was falling off their skin, he connected the dots and was so overwhelmed with gratitude, he didn't go to the priest, he returned to Jesus, fell at his feet and thanked him. And Luke goes out of his way to be sure that we know that this was a Samaritan. Now, we've talked previously about the disdain Jews had for Samaritans. And we get an interesting perspective here. See, Jews and Samaritans had very little personal interaction with each other. But suffering is no respecter of persons, is it? 
Neither is suffering a respecter of prejudices. And it's likely that Jews and Samaritans were were thrust together against all their religious convictions, the social protocols. They were thrust together and bound together by their shared experience with leprosy. But this one who in most in his day, most would have considered the least likely to return to Jesus was the first. In fact, he was the only. And Jesus asked three pointed questions. Likely a group was gathered around Jesus and he directs these questions to the group of people who were standing around him. Were not all 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to praise God except this foreigner? Now, to be fair, we don't know that the nine who didn't return weren't grateful on some level. They were certainly grateful to be cleansed by Jesus. They were grateful to to be returning to their lives. Hard to imagine that they weren't. You know, maybe they were just more eager than ever to get to the priest because they were more than eager to return to their families. And maybe some of them at a, a week later or a month later would eventually find their way to their Jesus to thank him. But in Jesus' day, it, was, it wasn't uncommon, and much like our day, actually, it wasn't uncommon for people to gladly receive the, the things that Jesus could do for them, feed them and heal them, and, and gladly receive everything that Jesus offered, yet still not be ready to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. But the Samaritan did get it. He returned to Jesus because he understood and believed who Jesus was. And falling at Jesus' feet and thanking him was far more than a gesture of gratitude for being cleansed. It was a gesture of worship. He saw the scope of this. Jesus was who he claimed to be. And and that explains Jesus' final words in verse 19. And Jesus said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Each of our English versions, all of, I looked at all the English versions I could find, and they all translate the end of verse 19 the same way. Your faith has made you well. What's interesting is the Greek word is sozo. A literal translation would be, your faith has saved you. And maybe Jesus intended to both, that when he came back and fell at Jesus' feet, He was saved, his physical life was saved from the isolation of leprosy and his soul was saved from eternal isolation from God. Maybe it's all of that. Now, how do we respond to a story like this today? Gratitude is hard to hold on to in today's world. The digital world we live in today, arguably, is devoted to stirring anxiety, fear, and outrage. 
Now, whether we recognize it or not, it's affected all of us, all of us. None of us have escaped this. And one of the biggest casualties may be our capacity for gratitude. We're more anxious and less peaceful. We're more angry. We're more defensive and reactive. We're more critical, we're more judgmental. It doesn't take long to see that even followers of Jesus are less guarded in what we post and say online or what we say to one another. You see, gratitude has a much harder time finding a space to flourish in our souls today because maybe the space is too crowded. And there's so much in the space that it's, it's pushed gratitude to the far margins. In the letter to the Colossians, Paul described what our practice as a community of people is to look like as followers of Jesus. And, and listen carefully to, Je- to Paul's words. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Peaceful and grateful people. Such a timely word for today. When people encounter us and they watch the way that you and I go about our daily lives and and they watch the ways that we engage people, they're to walk away thinking they are the most peaceful and grateful people I've ever met. That's what following Jesus is supposed to look like. That's what the gospel looks like. They're peaceful. They're grateful. Uh, One of the passages that has shaped and sustained me in a profound way over these past couple of years with all the uncertainty created by the pandemic and, and all that has been shaking in our culture racially and politically is found at the very end of Psalm 29. And David wrote this, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people and he blesses his people with peace. The Lord is king, he's sovereign, his providence. And, and for those who believe that, he, he not only gives us strength, he, he blesses us with peace and, and, and peacefulness is God's gift to those who trust him and peacefulness opens our heart to gratitude for everything God is doing in and around us. 
We know this, don't we? We know this. It's nothing new to any of us, or largely most of us. That's not new information to us. We would acknowledge God's rule and God's reign. We would say God is king. We acknowledge that God provides for us, that he's the giver of all things. He's the giver of our health and our breath, our abilities, our family, our friends, our livelihoods, our income. And so it raises the question, do we regularly fall at Jesus' feet in gratitude for his goodness and his generosity? Are we more like the nine who didn't return to Jesus or the one who did? You see, we are surrounded by a culture that carries within it an unspoken belief. Life owes me something. And for those of us who follow Jesus, it's a, it's a very quick slide to not only does life owe me something, but God owes me something. Contemporary research in neuroscience paints a helpful picture, although sobering picture of ingratitude. Let's talk about ingratitude for a moment. And this is, this is kind of sobering. Ungrateful people tend to be characterized by exaggerated self-absorption and self-importance. Now think about that. When you and I lack gratitude, it's often because we are so self-absorbed and, and we have reached a place where our life and the way we look at our life has become disproportionately important. In its, in its most unhealthy forms, if you push ingratitude to its extreme, it expresses itself as narcissism. And I, I, was, I was doing some reading about narcissism this week, and I, I read something that kind of put me back on my heels a little bit. A narcissist can never be truly grateful for any gift because narcissists cannot identify with the heart of the giver. You see, those who, who are bent towards narcissism lack empathy and lack the emotional capacity to experience life outside of themselves. And so even when someone does something generous, they, they're unable to emotionally connect to it. Almost a sense of entitlement. Now, research suggests that only 1% of the adult population meet the clinical criterion for what we'd call narcissistic disorder. But I think we would all agree that narcissism is wide open in our culture today. It's raging in our culture today. And I think we're all susceptible. We're all susceptible. And even as followers of Jesus, because we all carry narcissistic DNA within us, it's the very nature of sin. It's the nature of the flesh. We all carry the DNA within us. And, and it explains, it helps us to understand certain things. Uh, we've got this phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. That's why the more familiar we become with our relationships, 
The more familiar you are with our family and with friends, the more likely we are to take them for granted and be ungrateful. It's even true spiritually. The more we handle holy words and holy things, the more we take them for granted and the less grateful we are for them. Ingratitude is contagious and viral. It's passed from one person to another person. It's passed from one family to another family. It's passed from one generation to another generation through our family systems. And the good news is gratitude is equally contagious and viral. So here's a question I want you to encourage you, if you've got the courage, to, to discuss with your family. Does our family environment, does our family system nurture gratitude or does it enable ingratitude? What are you passing on? What am I passing on? Well, I want to take just a couple of minutes and talk about some practices that nurture gratitude. Four simple ideas. We could, we, I could do a talk on each one of them, but I want to briefly talk through just four simple things. Here's the first. Humility. One writer says it like this. Gratitude is always born of humility, for it acknowledges the giftedness of the creator, the creation, and the benevolence of the creator. And this recognition gives birth to acts of gratitude by, marked by attention and responsibility. Ingratitude, on the other hand, is marked by hubris, which denies the gift. And this always leads to inattention, irresponsibility, and abuse. Humility reminds us of our limitations. It reminds us that we need God in others. Humility shields us from the myth of self-sufficiency. Humility leads us to look outward beyond ourselves to other sources to sustain us. Humility shatters any illusion of being self-made that somehow life on earth is a right to grab. Humility acknowledges life as a gift to be grateful for, not a right to be claimed. Without humility, there is no gratitude. Without humility, there's no gratitude. Here's the second one, and it probably surprises you. My guess, if I ask you to name a list of practices for humility, most of you would not have included this one. The word is detachment. And yet I have found it to be one of the most important factors in my journey towards gratitude. Think of it like this. One of the biggest obstacles to our gratitude is our expectations. Um, much of our gratitude or ingratitude can be traced to our disappointment and our unmet expectations with God our parents, our marriage partners, our children, our grandchildren, followers of Christ, where our life is right now in our circumstances. Detachment simply means, and I, I'm gonna, I, I love this phrase, it's, it's not original to me. Detachment means being free of wanting certain things to happen. Let me say that again. 
Detachment means being free of wanting certain things to happen. Now, I, I know that feels dissonant. Uh, detachment is different than not caring. It doesn't mean we're apathetic. Detachment is a healthy spiritual practice that's anchored in a deep trust of God that places us in a unique posture where we're able to look at whatever is unfolding before us and we're ever able to say something like this, what is happening will be the thing that we most need and in time most want, so we're going to be, peace with, be peaceful with whatever it is. And it, it's born not out of the circumstances, but out of a trust in God's providence. That whatever he allows into our lives, even though we don't see it or understand it or appreciate it, it just doesn't make sense to us. We're going to look at it through the lens and the filter of God's providence and say, so whatever it is, if it's from God, I'm going to be peaceful with it. And, and whatever outcome I thought, I'm, I'm going to detach myself from that. Detachment. Here's the third practice. Now we start getting into some very active. The first two are a little bit more passive. The last two are pretty active. The third practice is noticing. Noticing. I see things in myself that undermines noticing. Maybe you recognize them. Busyness. Not slowing down enough to even notice. Distracted. I read some recent research this week that suggested that the average iPhone user touches their phone over 2,000 times a day. The average. Um, and they suggest that you can double that for millennials and Gen Z. And friends, as you know, there are brilliant minds investing millions, billions of dollars working around the clock to digitally distract us. Um, and, and then to monetize their distractions, to sell the ability to modify our attitudes and behavior to advertisers. And what's going on in our culture today, the billboards that used to line our streets, our billboards are now inside of us. And that's where it's being marketed. Distractions. Weariness. When I'm running too hard, I get lazy with important priorities and practices. And one of my favorite authors is Wendell Berry. Some of you read Wendell Berry. And someone from Grace sent this to me a couple of weeks ago. And, and he was talking about just kind of rooting where we are and being grateful. And here was Wendell Berry's advice. Slow down. Pay attention. Do good work, love your neighbors, love your place, stay in your place, settle for less, and enjoy it more. <laughs> That's good advice. Do you notice, do you notice the everyday things in your life? You see, noticing is like breathing to gratitude. If we're not noticing, we're not grateful. Here's the last practice. Humility, detachment, noticing. The fourth is naming. Naming. Where do we name the things that we are grateful for? 
You know, where is it that we fall on our feet before Jesus? Those who know me know that I'm a journaler. And the practice of writing things down, I, years ago I began the practice of writing things down from the day before that I'm grateful. So every morning I begin the same way. I take a few moments and I notice and name the things that happened the day before that I'm grateful to God for. I just make a list. And I just spend a few minutes saying, thank you, God. I'm grateful for a good night's rest. And I'm grateful for that conversation. I'm, I'm grateful. And I just kind of list the things I'm grateful for. It's, it's one of the first things I do as I begin my day. It shapes the way I enter my day. I love how one writer described it. When you begin with the practice of noticing and naming gratitude, it's relaxing into God's goodness. Relaxing into God's goodness. And now we step into our day in a very different frame of, frame of mind. Well, I'm going to wrap it up now. But I had, I had a thought. Reflection, you know, gratitude, a reflection of our spiritual health as a family, as a community, is when we become more free and more comfortable expressing our gratitude to one another. Remember, remember what I said earlier? that the practice of gratitude is contagious? How sweet would it be if people described us, Grace Church, as a family that are just peaceful and grateful people? And when they ask why, we could talk about Jesus. Peaceful, grateful people. So here's what I would like to do for a moment as the worship team kind of makes their way back up. I'd like us to take a couple of moments and I'd like you to notice and name something. So just in a, in a brief minute, I want you to think about something. I want you to think of something that God has done for you in the past 48 hours. Something that you're grateful for. And take just a moment and thank God for it. Just thank God for whatever it is you named. Then I'd like you to take one more step. I would like you to think of someone who has done something for you, said something to you, given you something. Uh, maybe someone here who's blessed you. And I'd like you to thank God for them. But I'd like you to do something else. In the next 24 hours, reach out to them and thank them. Be grateful. Express your gratitude. Father, may we be like the one who returned. People who are deeply grateful for the good gifts you bring to us. Peaceful, grateful people. Peaceful, grateful people. In Jesus' name.